0: All right. Hello there, everybody. Welcome once again to another exciting edition of everyone's favorite Colin. And if you have a Colin show that is your favorite and it's not mine, well, please keep that that to yourself because we don't want to hurt feelings around here. Um, I am presently in Poland. I successfully made the journey. So I've been here for 36 hours or so. And kind of getting my footing, making an agenda for some reportage. I have spoken to some people along the way, uh, sort of casually. The first being, actually before I even arrived at the airport, um, before the flight took off a few days ago, whenever that was now, I met a Ukrainian-American woman who had just booked a last minute flight to Warsaw, where I am, in hopes of trying to rent a car and then making her way near the Ukraine border so she could help facilitate a younger relative of hers um, to be able to get out of Ukraine. And she had no plan for this, really, when I was speaking to her, other than head for the border and uh, see what happens. Um, trying to follow up with her actually and see uh, what the latest update is on uh, her her plan, but I uh, haven't haven't heard back yet. Um, but anyway, I, I had a long conversation with this woman. She, you know, perfectly nice, understandably worried and uh, angry, uh, given her familial connections in Ukraine. I mean, she was showing me how relatives have been in the vicinity of a lot of really harrowing fighting and uh, even where she had gone to school uh, in Kharkiv uh, has been you know, pretty much destroyed or very majorly devastated anyway. Um, so, I mean, how could he not sympathize with somebody in that situation, which uh, I did, um, but She then broached the topic – or I actually asked her what her thought was on a no-fly zone, on US uh, military intervention. And she was saying that there ought to be a no-fly zone, unsurprisingly. I mean this is pretty much a unanimous opinion uh, in terms of what I'm hearing from Ukraine government officials, kind of just figures throughout society, ordinary people. Maybe there's some dissension – in terms of opinion on that, but it's uh, almost unanimous from, uh, unanimous from what I gather. And, uh, you know, I gave her, you know, politely and reservedly um, the same rebuttal that I would give pretty much to anybody else who was advocating that, notwithstanding whatever personal stake they have in a horrible situation, um, which is that I said, you know, this is clearly going to instigate wider war even World War Three should your uh, recommendation be followed? And her response to this has now echoed. Now, you see what her response was, echoing throughout all their venues, all manner of other venues in the media, in the commentariat, in the uh, advocacy for a no-fly zone. And she said, well, don't you get it? World War Three has already started, Right. Zelensky himself, the president of Ukraine, he's on a full-out lobbying blitz right now, including meeting over Zoom just yesterday with 300 senators and congressmen offering up a quote-unquote emotional plea for a no-fly zone. He repeated it again today. He's been doing it as much as humanly possible, it seems, meaning demanding the imposition of a no-fly zone. And when people say a no-fly zone, I mean, it should be clear, if it isn't already, that they're calling for the U.S. to impose the no-fly zone. I mean, the U.S. is the commander of NATO, more or less. Um, so whether it's done under the aegis of the U.S. or NATO or whomever, it's going to be the U.S. doing it, okay? Um, and... Advocates of this, you'll find, if you kind of examine closely what they're saying, they're actually denying the premise that it would constitute any bona fide escalation because they're saying, again, the wider war has already been started. So it's only a matter of us, meaning the US or the West, coming to grips with that. Like this woman I met, the Ukrainian-American woman. She was utterly convinced that Putin would be on a mad campaign to invade other countries uh, in in short order if there's not something done now. Um, you see this speculated about all, all the time. Uh, I don't know if it's true. It may be true. It may not be. I mean, frankly, it seems implausible to me that he's going to march into Poland and then further west or whatever the prevailing theory is at the moment. But, you know, I can't rule anything out. I mean, these past 10 days have taught me to not be overconfident in my analytical assumptions. So I'm open-minded about it. Um, But that said, it hasn't happened yet, right? And what would happen if the U.S. did heed these calls for a no-fly zone is that there would be war with Russia instigated and that would be the closest thing to World War III that's ever occurred. In fact, we're closer now to World War III than we ever really have been at least since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you see the most hawkish people in the country (laughs) admitting this. I mean, Marco Rubio has been saying it. I just read actually about a half hour or so ago a, uh, a really startling piece in Politico, uh, the European edition of Politico, so politico.eu. And unfortunately, the structure of this piece is annoying to me just in the sense that it's so heavily reliant on anonymous sources, right? And uh, it relies on paraphrase and stuff. But, you know – the message being conveyed seems to me probably accurate. And let me just quote to you a passage. Quote, senior Western government officials, diplomats, and military analysts acknowledge that there is now a grave danger that the U.S. and other NATO allies could be drawn into the war at virtually any moment as the result of any number of scenarios. And What are some of those scenarios? Well, they they list a couple. One is that the images of humanitarian suffering are just so extreme in Ukraine that there's a demand within these countries, in the US, UK, France, wherever, to proactively impose the no-fly zone, notwithstanding prior assurances that it wouldn't happen. Right. right um, what's another scenario that's speculated on here and this is one I've talked about and been accused of being paranoid for uh, focusing on but now here it is in Politico um, and these are called mundane scenarios uh, well you had Russian planes violating a Swedish a Swedish airspace allegedly and the US ambassador to the UN a couple days ago declared at the UN General Assembly, that Putin was threatening to invade Sweden. So who knows what's that going to, uh, with what that could potentially culminate in? Um, but also, you know, you have the potential of just errors or uh, miscommunications. And here's a quote: Washington-based analyst, who's for some reason anonymously quoted in, in this article, which I, again I find extremely obnoxious, but. This animalist says, uh, by way of laying out a potential scenario, quote, they lob a missile into Poland. That is not imp- impossible, and then it quickly escalates. But we have to respond. We can't not respond. Um, so why would they lob, meaning Russia, quote-unquote, lob a missile into Poland? Well, um, if the U.S., slash NATO are running combat operations out of Poland in Ukraine uh, then Russia could pretty conceivably interpret that as a direct attack and retaliate Right. Um, still no resolution to the question that I raised a couple days ago which is are Polish bases being used as launch points for aerial attacks by Ukraine pilots That's what the Ukrainian military said a week ago ago uh, or six days ago, and it hasn't been disputed yet. Just a couple days ago, we had kind of a half admission that the U.S. is feeding real-time intel to the Ukrainian military for use in combat operations. Now, where is from where is the, uh, that intel being fed? I mean, the, there are more U.S. troops in Poland right now than there have been in decades. So, you know, one of my goals for being here in Poland is to try to ascertain the be- as best I can what role the U.S. military is playing right now. I don't know why there is such an incuriosity about that. I mean, the Pentagon has expressly forbidden the media from observing these uh, new, you know, outposts, U.S. military outposts in Poland that have been uh, set up right near the border of Ukraine. Now, are they trying to hide something? wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility that they would want to preserve secrecy on that score. Uh, because maybe if the full uh, light of day were shown on what was going on, it would indicate that there's the kind of proactive escalation that at least the top of the food chain, meaning Biden and the Secretary of State and whatnot, they say is not happening. Um, I don't know. I mean, so I'm doing what I can. Uh, and I'm preparing for it now as I'm in Poland to, to look into that. <sighs> However, I can if you're and if you're listening to this and you have any uh, recommendations for what I ought to do, uh, you know, please get in touch. I've already got a lot of great recommendations uh, just in the past, you know, two or three days. So thank you for that. Um, uh, I wrote a uh, a piece today in uh, Substack. Uh, I recommend everybody look at. And yeah, the headline is pretty jarring. I'll grant it, but I don't know how anybody can dispute my headline. I mean, it's a truthful headline. I mean, sometimes the truth is jarring. And the headline is as follows. Ukraine is trying to go the US into World War III. Okay, and what is that statement based on? Well, it's based on two premises. And again, I invite anybody to dispute the following two premises. Number one, Zelensky. The president of Ukraine is in a furious, frenzied, emotionally expressive uh, lobbying campaign to compel or solicit or prompt or whatever verb you want to use the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone. I don't think that's a controversial observation. He's doing it. He did it yesterday. He did it today. He does it pretty much every time he speaks so far as I can tell. And remember, he's advocating for this on the ground that World War III has already happened. So don't worry Americans about the escalatory potential here. This is just really a, a, a matter of accepting reality. And uh, again, that's a, that's a logic, which is you now, seeing, you now see being repeated lots of different places. In that Politico article I mentioned earlier, uh, there's this independent security analyst who's quoted named Molly McHugh, who you might remember <laughs> as one of the more kind of unhinged uh, Russiagate proponents here in the u s um, from two thousand and sixteen onward. Um, but anyway, here's what she says. I mean, and this is a version of Zelensky's logic, quote it's not it's like we're not understanding that we're a participant in this war already, which by the way, I agree with. I mean, that's that also is incontrovertibly true. I mean, if you're funneling, giant amounts of weapons into a hot war zone for use in combat, then you are a participant. I mean NATO has already established quote-unquote interoperability with the Ukraine military over the past several years. In 2020, NATO elevated Ukraine into this new partnership status. The US runs military exercises in Ukrainian territory with the military – so as to fuse together their operations. I mean, so, yeah, this is – the U.S. already is a participant. The only question now is whether that participation, quote-unquote, is going to escalate to the more overt combat role that a lot of people are calling for with the no-fly zone. Anyway, here's Molly McHugh. It's like we're not understanding that we're a participant in this war already, not because we put ourselves there – don't agree with that – not because we're we were looking for this war, not because of any decision that NATO made or any individual – Bilateral partners of Ukraine made, but because Vladimir Putin is fighting a war against us. And if we show up to the war, it will end sooner and faster with less people dead. And that's really the decision we have to make now. So understand what she's saying. She's saying this war, meaning World War III, or something approximating World War III, because it involves direct war with Russia, okay? She's saying that's already a foregone conclusion. She's saying it's already happening, right? So now it's only a matter. Of like a strategic calculation on the part of the U.S. as to when it wants to enter that war, so there you have so many people creating this air of inevitability. And if it sounds like a marginal view to you, it's really not. I mean, it's amazing how much momentum this no-fly zone idea has already has gotten just in the past week. In the past week, or ten day, you know, a week ago, or ten days ago, or definitely two weeks ago, the the notion of a no-fly zone seemed. Just ridiculous, right? Of course the U.S. is not going to go to war against Russia and Ukraine. I mean maybe some people thought it was plausible, but it was not anywhere near uh, like it is now in terms of the mainstream proponents of a no-fly zone coming out of the woodworks. Gary Kasparov, Bill Browder. I mean those two might not seem like the most significant figures to you. I mean, although they're fairly well-known, but they have been absolutely pivotal, the most pivotal, at the top of the list, top five uh, at least uh, over the past number of years in shaping U.S. policy and U.S. media perceptions of Russia. I mean these people have wield enormous influence and they're aggressively lobbying for a no-fly zone right now. I mean you have generals uh, not just in the U.S. but also in Canada, um, in the U.K., Demanding a no-fly zone, Um, the president uh, or the prime minister, rather, of Slovenia, which you know maybe you're not totally familiar with Slovenia. I'm not an expert in Slovenia either, but I do uh, know that Slovenia is a NATO member state because George W. Bush had the brilliant idea of egging on NATO expansion in the early 2000s, and part of the class of 2004 was Slovenia. So now they're a member state a NATO member state and the U S is treaty bound to defend them. And the prime minister was going around calling for a no fly zone, but he says, don't worry. It'll be limited and humanitarian. Okay. So if we just tell Russia that we're doing this for humanitarian reasons, they're going to say, Oh, okay. You know, chalk it all up to a misunderstanding. If the, if the U S military shoots down a Russian jet, right? It's okay. Cause it's limited and humanitarian, humanitarian. Um, so, I mean, and I can give you many more examples. Look at the substack. The idea is gaining momentum. Yes, Biden and the Biden administration and other Western leaders um, have said that they're not going to do a no-fly zone, but you know they say a lot of things, okay? And uh, look at how much of this has escalated. Um, and they might ha- have to do it proactively. There could be some other incident or some other mode of escalation uh, that prompts them to then do a variation on this. Um, But anyway, back to the title of the substack, right? Okay, so that's premise number one. Uh, Zelensky is actively lobbying for a no-fly zone, which would constitute war against Russia. I don't know how anybody can dispute that. Premise number two is as follows. Um, The no-fly zone would constitute World War III. Actually, actually it's only kind of one premise. I mean, (laughs) Zelensky is clearly doing this, right? He's in the midst of a lobbying campaign and his uh, cited policy intervention that he's seeking is the no fly zone. And the no fly zone would culminate in war against Russia. So, have you asked yourself why the US media is in such a furor, so head over heels for Zelensky right now? Why they are championing him as this world historic figure who's the embodiment of all that is good in the world. Why they are welling up with tears every time he, he appears somewhere and you know raises his fist as he did on Zoom one time recently. And what is he saying he wants done? He wants the initiation of World War III. That's what he says he wants. And they're not trying to hide it. His chief of staff was allowed by the New York Times to write an op ed a few days ago, making the same call and spelling out this exact same logic about the inevitability of World War III. So, you know, maybe this individual, Zelensky, is not somebody that the US media should just be kind of mindlessly valorizing as though he's like the personification of human. Greatness. If what he's calling for is, or three, I mean, it's hard to be even believe that we're talking about this in realistic terms, right? I mean, this should be the most unfathomable and like batshit insane proposition that anybody could ever dream of. And you, know, you see it kind of gradually, or even not so gradually, pretty rapidly actually, but you know, n- nonetheless, ever more progressively gaining a currency as a mainstream concept and uh to the point now where there's this clear push to make it seem inevitable so it's like it's not a choice between world war it's being presented as not a choice between do we instigate world war three or don't we it's do we enter world war three now or later Um, and so it's uh really i mean what's to even say Uh, all i can do at this point is uh on my end Try to kind of sift through all this as clear-eyed as I can and um, you know write about it speak about it try to do some reporting here in Poland on it uh, you know I'm here I uh, <laughs> got out of my apartment in uh, Jersey City where I felt like I was doing no good and um, yeah that's it so uh, gonna go now to some callers thanks everybody for joining the stage, and let's go to Pradeep. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are
1: you? you um, Thank you for the clear-eyed and factual and, uh, what's the word, Um, uh, prescient analysis, I guess, you know. I I like your title, and I think uh, nobody can dispute that. So my question is slightly tangential. It's more about uh, from what I can read and find, Russia hasn't retaliated much, you know, so I'm wondering if you have uh, any, um, if you know in, of any Russian retaliations and is the muted or lack of retaliation mostly to try avoid World War Three on their part because, you know, some people said uh, any, even the cyber attacks on any of the NATO countries will constitute an attack on NATO and they'll on to retaliate. So, uh, what's your thoughts on that?
0: When you mean retaliation, I mean, could you be a little more specific? You mean retaliate against NATO countries or the U.S. or US. some non-Ukraine actor here? Okay. Yeah, because um,
1: they were the ones uh, who are basically doing these severe sanctions, right? So.
0: Yeah. Well, look. I mean, you know, first of all, you mentioned this notion of a cyber attack. Constituting an act of war. I mean that's a doctrine which has been pretty well developed now in the US uh, and NATO over the past several years. And there was a um, kind of a whole working theory put forward in NATO in the – I want to say 2018, 19, something like that, which uh, presented a cyber attack – depending on its scale or severity or, or something, as a potential impetus for the invocation of Article 5, which is the collective defense clause of NATO and essentially put it in a war footing against whoever commits the uh, cyber attack. So that that's always been, you know, even before this whole fiasco, that kind of loomed as a potential uh, route to uh, global conflict if actually they follow through on it. I mean, that's sort of a questionable doctrine as to its kind of, practical implementation, but nonetheless, I mean, that has been fleshed out as a real real uh, thing in the, in the very recent past. Um, in terms of uh, retaliation against the U.S., uh, well, I mean, I, I think it's very early on already. Um, I don't know of any incident where Russia has directly attacked the U.S. I think, you know, I don't want to get into speculation mode where I'm trying to put myself in the mind of Putin. I mean, that's such a tedious mode of punditry. Um, but, you know, if, let's say you were Putin, right, and you were willing to countenance World War Three potentially, how would you prefer that World War Three be initiated? Well, you would want the aggressor to ish- initiate it, right? Meaning you would want the U.S. to initiate it. I mean, I really do think that this this war is um, a proxy battle, um, it's not that matter that I think it. I mean, I think it's factually established that this war in Ukraine is a proxy battle between the U.S. and Russia, and the people suffering most are the Ukraine civilians. I mean, they're they're the ones caught in the middle of this cluster F. Um. And so, again, if you're willing to entertain that potentiality, I think you probably would want to wait for the U.S. to. Overreact, or the U.S. to commit some violation, and or maybe you know enter Ukrainian or Belarusian airspace, or um, it to be shown that there was some kind of direct, tangible, operational um, role that the U.S. is carrying out in uh, facilitating Ukrainian military operations. which again is highly plausible, but it was half confirmed. A couple days ago, I mean, Adam Smith, who's the head of the armed services committee uh, in in the house, he was on TV on on Thursday morning saying that it would be a step too far. It would be, uh, you know, it would constitute a grave escalation. I'm paraphrasing. But he said something to that effect. If the U.S. fed real time intel to the Ukrainian military for use in combat operations and then a couple hours later, uh, Jen Psaki and others, you know, it gets leaked out. Probably is happening. I mean, they didn't spell it out with enough precision to be 100% sure, but they alluded to it happening. They alluded to the U.S. playing that role right now. Um, so, you know, maybe Putin already has a pretext, given already what's uh, what the U.S. has done in Ukraine, and there's no need for uh, a no fly zone. I mean, I think some, and I know I wrote about the no fly zone today because I think it's the most egregious and kind of blatant and uh, glaring mode by which there could be this escalation. But it's not the only mode of escalation, right? I mean, it's just the most uh, kind of clear-cut and uh, extreme. Uh, there are right. plenty of other scenarios. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. That's just kind of my, my scattered right. thoughts.
1: If I can make another yeah, yeah, sure. Basically, that sounds like... Um me that, you know, I read the uh, Putin's speech in full before when he yeah. announced this uh, special military operation. From what I can gather, most of what he actually outlined actually checked out, even though some of them are a little hyperbole and exaggerated in terms of denazification and whatnot. And it's the other side which has been basically, uh, what's the word, propaganding much more. So basically what I'm trying to say is it sounds like Putin is sticking to stated goals, you know, of this uh, special military operations, so to say. And the way you put it, like, you know, who would you want to be the aggressor in starting the World War III? I think that's a very good uh, question to reveal. Maybe he's... Uh, I mean, I don't know if that would help him in the long run, but it sounds like he's sticking to the original plans, or maybe he thinks it's probably just... Uh, too much to take on, you know, despite these, uh, uh, what's the word, crushing sanctions, you
0: know? Right. Well, one reason why I say that this is a proxy war between the U.S. and the West, uh, the U.S. and uh, Russia, is because that's essentially what Putin says, right? If you read that very very speechy reference from the night of the invasion, so February 23rd, yeah, he does this whole you know, interlude about denazification and claiming that a genocide is underway, which I think is you know ridiculous. I mean, that's not been substantiated anywhere. I mean, even if you think that the Ukrainian military has been overly aggressive and violent and uh, violated human rights or whatever in the Donbass, which is reasonable, but then the idea that the, the whole country is run by Nazis and um, there's a genocide happening. I mean, that that's not substantiated right um so you know, that's one like aspect of his argument um and i know about the azov battalion and all that i'm just saying you know the the generalization of the entire country is just crawling with nazis is uh, you know doesn't hold up to scrutiny whatsoever in my judgment um but you know there's a kind of like a second part of his rationalization in that in that uh speech and he's you know commented on this repeatedly um even before the invasion was initiated and a lot of it just revolves around the US. Yeah, there's the issue of NATO uh, expansion, which has been a consistent grievance of uh, the Russian political leadership um, for decades. I mean I pulled up documents actually from the Clinton Library, so the Bill Clinton's presidential library from uh, 97 or 95 and 90 – I'm sorry, 95 um, – 1995, where Boris Yeltsin, who's basically like the uh, the great friend of li- uh, Western liberalizers for helping to you know privatize the Russian economy, and uh, like decimating Russia in the 90s, essentially and having you know these you know, who we now call oligarchs, allowing them to fleece kind of the public resources. Um, even Yeltsin was saying, you know, to Bill Clinton. If you move forward on this NATO expansion, I have no choice but to view it as a humiliation of Russia. Um, and you know, Yeltsin was aggressively pushing back against this, despite being in such good graces with the U.S. Um, and so, so it's not just NATO expansion, though. I mean, look at the look at what else Putin. Talks about he goes through the whole history of U.S. Foreign, of like recent U.S. foreign policy in that speech, uh, Iraq, Libya, uh, Serbia, um, Syria, uh, others, as showing that the U.S. D- doesn't hold any muster in terms of its claim fidelity to international norms or what have you. And yeah, that's not entirely wrong. Even if Putin Putin the the mere fact of Putin saying it doesn't make it wrong, okay? But I think he's all he, it almost occurred to me and I was talking about this uh, with somebody not long ago, but it almost occurred to me that he's kind of using the flagrant kind of abuses of the US as it's unto itself like a affirmative justification for what he's doing. It's just like, you know, if the US can trample over all these Concepts of international norms, then surely Russia, in all its might, must do the same. I mean, they've already shown that there's no, um, there's no fidelity to any of uh, these international bodies, whether it be the UN or whatever. I mean, remember, I mean, uh, uh, NATO, which all uh, when actually in 1999, when NATO bombed, you know, launched the Kosovo mission, uh, Yeltsin also condemned that. Um, and so it's it's not it wasn't it's not been controversial in Russia, to be uh, very much, you know, infuriated, frankly, by the U- U.S. foreign policy. So it's almost like it's kind of crystallized into a justification unto itself for Putin for this action. I mean, maybe it's a little bit speculative on my part, but it's just like my my reading of uh, what what's been said. Um, and on the point of the Russian economy, yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I, I tweeted earlier, uh, but I, I, I think it's true. I mean, tell me where I'm wrong. It seems like the middle ground position in the U.S. I mean, even for the people who, say, who are saying, look, a no-fly zone is not going to happen. That would be way too dangerous. Um, I mean, I don't really buy their kind of uh, – the, that they're going to be faithful stewards of that promise because, like, I feel like in a chaotic wartime situation, stuff is evolving with such – Speed, um, but regardless, I mean the current position is among uh, the Biden administration and I would say probably most U.S. politicians is that you know we don't want a no-fly zone now, despite Zelensky's emotional pleas. But what we do want to do is utterly decimate and destroy the Russian economy. I mean, there was a New York Times article from a few days ago saying that. Nothing on this scale has ever been attempted before in terms of the U.S. sanctions regime, you know, in concert with Europe and others, trying to just collapse an economy that you know it's not the largest in the world, but it's one of them. I mean, it's up there. It's not like this is a uh, Botswana, and uh, also, by the way, they have the world's largest nuclear arsenal, and we're just going to destroy their economy and then hope for the best. I mean, that's the middle ground view in the U.S. Um, so you know, it might seem like a big leap from there to no fly zone, but I mean, the, the, there's a lot of momentum behind a lot of extreme positions, uh, or positions that not long ago would have been viewed as extreme. I mean, we already seem to have crossed a, a threshold. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Pradeep. Going to go to Andrew. Go ahead, Andrew.
2: Oh, Michael, thank you for doing this. It's uh, very surreal. Um. Maybe hyperbolic, but it sounds like we could be living the last days of humanity, potentially, according to people high up in positions of power. And uh, <clears throat> you wouldn't feel that way. Most of us wouldn't even apparently be aware of it. So, uh, anyway,
0: if true, you know, I wish I played more video games. That would be my one to
2: <laughs> Right. Anyway, um, this no-fly zone thing I think is kind of a canard and a tell, and I have some reasons for thinking that. Um, One of them is that if these people actually thought we were in World War III, and I don't mean like the lady that you talked to, but actual people in power, whether in Ukraine or America, thought we were in World War III, the the answer wouldn't be a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I would like to get your thoughts on that because I, I, taking these people seriously, if you're in World War III with Russia, the first step is a no-fly zone over Ukraine. You'd be doing much more drastic things than this, and they're not calling for those things because they know they would sound ridiculous and Americans would never go for them. But a fly zone, they they know that sounds more reasonable.
0: Well, yeah. I mean the, the even the term no-fly zone, it's like a it's an explicitly crafted euphemism. Um, it has the connotation of like this – Humanitarian mission, where oh, you are just saying no fly, please to <laughs> enemy aircraft, as if you know enforcing that no fly zone isn't an act of outright combat, which it is. I mean, ho- hopefully, people understand what a no fly zone is at this point. Why would that even be a it. priority um, if we were? Actually no, no, but, World but yeah, no, no, but I but I know what you mean exactly. I, I agree with you. I don't think they legitimately th- believe that World War III is underway. I feel like World War III would be like the definition of obscenity that the Supreme Court made in the 60s, which is like you know it when yeah. you see it. I mean I think we would know when World War III was actually underway and it's not. I mean this is bad in Ukraine and the potential for wider escalation is perilous, but it's not World War III yet. And I think – they're again, they're saying World War III is underway as a pretext, right? I mean or as a tactic to – Make it seem utterly rational and reasonable, and just make you know, cold um, pragmatism to endorse escalatory measures like the no-fly zone. Um, uh, because, yeah, if if it truly was the case that World War III is upon us, it would, you know, the the policy measure they'd be advocating wouldn't just be a no-fly zone. Um, and you know, I don't, again, I, I don't want to overstate how many people are saying that World War III is upon us, right? I mean, I don't, I haven't heard. Any high-profile politicians really say that yet? Um, but you have scattered uh, figures, like I mentioned, like this person, McHugh, and others. And the, the idea is, the notion is growing uh, in terms of momentum. And there's this kind of billionaire hedge fund guy who's uh, constantly uh, tweeting about how, his belief that World War III is already underway, and you know the U.S. kind of needs to get serious and get involved now rather than later. Um, but it, it, your typical politician is not saying this yet. Um, but the Ukraine lobby is saying it. I mean, they're saying it incessantly um and why are they saying it? Well, because they want the no fly zone imposed. I think they feel like that betters their chances against Russia, probably not unreasonably so, and may, maybe it would I mean it could it could also end up them be, in them being obliterated by a nuclear. Bomb, right, but you know, I, I, understand, I understand their logic. Um, but the people, but the, the, again, it's like it's an argumentative tactic. It, it's meant to create the impression of in, inevitability around World War III. So the specter of World War III doesn't dissuade Americans from supporting. No, so it, it, it seems to be working. I mean, I, in my substack, I studied a poll, a UGO poll, from a couple of days ago, showing that support among Americans is uh, growing for a no-fly zone. I don't know if they know exactly what it is or if it, the pollster explained it to them, but at least in terms of the question, do you support or don't you, uh, the imposition of the no-fly zone, a plurality of Americans now say they do, and it's growing by the day. And it's actually pretty evenly distributed across uh, party affiliations. So,
2: I think that the no-fly zone calls from Ukraine serve two purposes. One is the military one. They obviously think it might help them if it wouldn't bring the hammer down harder. But the other is it gives Zelensky an out. And I think this is something that we need to consider is that people are intentionally calling for things that they know won't happen, both in terms of asking for them and advocating for them, um, advocating for them on the U.S. side. So Zelensky, if he loses this war, I think he's going to become a martyr. I don't think there's a way out from that. Not that he'll be literally killed, but he'll be a political martyr one way or another. And if he can kind of blame NATO incompetence, that's an out for him politically. And then the other side of it is on the U.S., they can call for things they know will never happen, but which position them. Uh, as tougher than their opponents. And I think that's a Democrat-Republican thing going on right now is the Democrats are trying to take that mental of, like, tough on Russia so they can call for things they know won't happen um, but just sound tough. And, you know, it it doesn't even make sense in terms of a military-industrial complex uh, point of view, which is why I think the people in control are continuously saying that's not going to happen. The issue of World War III is through ambiguity and through mistakes and not knowing – and not having good lines of communication. So, if you think about a NATO no-fly zone, that doesn't—it's not tenable for us to make money off of that. But just today, we gave the now I believe we gave the green light to NATO to start getting planes to Ukraine. And th- yeah, now they yeah. want their planes replaced as well. So we're going to give them planes. And now you start to see the profit pipeline forming. And this is what they want to do. But the danger lies, as you were talking about, in the ambiguity. If if Putin and Biden don't understand where each other's red lines are, we're playing the most dangerous game. And a lot yeah. of these people are charlatans, and I hate them. But the serious people need to be called out and kind of cornered and, uh, like, forced to play out the logical thought process.
0: Thanks Ross so Yeah, yeah, I mean just a quick follow-up. I'm not sure on the first part of what you were saying, I, I really follow. Um, how is Zelensky trying to get a quote out politically? I mean it, it, if, if, his the overth- if his government is overthrown, then there's no need for him to politically maneuver anymore. I mean, the government's overthrown. He has no power. I mean so he's not even like a politician anymore. He's just a deposed leader. Um, I I don't know that he really needs an out. I mean, I think I think maybe he's just I, I don't know. I don't want to psychoanalyze. Um, but fair enough. You know, I I think you know it, it might be about physical martyrdom. I mean, he's now his people seem to be placing leaks into the media. I mean, there was a an article you know very anonymously sourced in the Times, the the London newspaper, a few days ago, claiming that in the past week um there were three attempts to assassinate him by russian mercenaries i mean i don't know if it's true it's plausible what
2: if they're not Um, russians here's here's the side of this his out could come before he loses because the right-wing forces in his country are trying to kill him i'm not saying this is true i'm just saying theoretically an out could be he's calling for tougher measures just because he wants to politically give himself the room so that right sector and Azov doesn't come for him i mean i I, like you said psychoanalyzing might
0: all right, thanks Andrew. I'm going to go to James. You're up. Hello James, are you there? So, you got to unmute. There you go. Okay. Yep.
3: Yeah. It's just working out these bugs on the Android app. I didn't realize I had to push a button.
0: How um, is the yeah. Android app by the way? It was launched like a week or so ago.
3: Yeah, I tried calling on another call. I, I don't think it was your show, but I wasn't able to unmute when I was called, so I was sad when I was passed oh. up. Maybe this one,
0: was... <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, congratulations I, 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 on unmuting.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of have to c- concur with uh, the previous caller. Like, you know, I, I also have nothing but contempt and uh, spite for the people who are trying to push for this uh, no fly zone and trying to recharacterize World War Three as a cute little euphemism. But my uh my question is kind of tangential. Um i'm kind of finding it creepy this whole like cancel russia thing that's going on like that's kind of like going through the west right now culturally just cancel anything russian yeah. you know, there's reports of like some symphony orchestras uh, sacking some russian composer because he's russian or like removing tchaikovsky from their list of uh, cultural music like it's it's ridiculous and like you know dumping vodka that's not even brewed in russia for one but people think it's russian
0: but like, <laughs> wait listen <laughs> i've been yeah. lied to
3: yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, it just seems like like the the way the West is responding to this crisis is through a lot of performative acts that kind of are just, in my opinion, ultimately counterproductive and also just playing into the hands of those who want to escalate things with Russia more. And I'm just wondering how how much of this do you think is also kind of poisoning the discourse and like getting in the way of actual rational dis- uh, rational discussion about this crisis going on in
0: Western Russia. Yeah, I mean, well, the weekend after the invasion, John Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, announced that they were going to be removing all Russian vodka from state-run liquor stores, which is like, oh, okay, well, that, that'll that solve the crisis, governor. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's crazy. Uh, I saw just yesterday, actually, a, a friend who's not in <laughs> the media sent me, um, told me that the F, an F1 driver who's... Russian. I might be messing up the terminology because I don't follow auto racing at all. But an F1 driver who's Russian was just removed from his team and basically, you know, thrown out of the of competition for seemingly no other reason than he's Russian. I mean, people have been claiming to me that this person's, I think the kid's like twenty one or something. That his father is an oligarch who's friendly with Putin. And okay, maybe that's true. I don't know the full details, but I don't know how that makes the kid culpable. I mean, they're they're exacting revenge on him seemingly for nothing that he did, other than the fact that he was born in Russia. And like, I mean, that's the most vulgar. I mean, that's like the core of like, you know, racism, really. I mean, I'm not saying that this is an act of racism necessarily, but there's something kind of crudely, I don't know, xenophobic is the right word, but something kind of malign about it in a very fundamental way. It kind of contradicts so many liberal principles about you know diversity and tolerance and all that um you know that all gets totally jettisoned at the first opportunity now if in furtherance of a political objective that you know all the you know every every pro every george floyd and covid uh obsessed obsessive is somehow now like standing with ukraine and you know singing patriotic Ukrainian songs and, and stuff yeah and see, so they're willing so they're willing to countenance uh, these actions that you know vacuum I mean, and if you if you replace Russia with any other kind of nationality, they would think it was rightly abhorrent yeah and by the way this was and by the way this stuff you saw flare-ups of this kind of thing during Russia gate right I, mean, I think Russiagate really primed the populace particularly like uh, liberals and the more progressive elements. Of the American kind of political scene, to uh, accept the, the the basic logic here, um, you know the reports I want to say from 2017 or 18 about how all these kind of Russian clubs and restaurants and stuff and the Russian kind of expa- uh, expatriate community in uh, D.C. was being ex- excluded from different events and and so on and so forth and you know remember how like just the the mere fact of having quote Russian contacts was enough to get. <coughs> Uh, Jeff Sessions in a giant controversy and uh, led to him authorizing the special counsel. I mean, this is maybe ancient history now; it's not directly relevant. But but there were there were precursors of this whole mentality that I think were fomented during uh, Russia Gate, and you know, a few people tried to point that out at the time. But now it's it's reached a critical mass, clearly.
3: Yeah, I just I just worry for the future because like now it's just like two, even.
0: Uh, can't hear you anymore, James. App just crashed in the middle of me speaking. (laughs) Oh, okay. uh, (laughs) Maybe the Android app isn't so great. Anyway, um, maybe it's my phone. All right. Well, uh, thanks, James. Going to go to the next uh, caller now. Uh, Matt, you're up. Please unmute. Hey,
4: Mike. Hey, last time we spoke, I was about to get married. It was on Clubhouse. And then, oh crazy really? Story? No. Well, you can come visit me in Bucharest because crazy story. They uh, they gave my beautiful Fulbright scholar, fashion model wife the boot when she tried to fly in the country from flying home to tell her grandma she was getting married. Uh, so please come visit wait, me. Wait, at Bucharest wait, 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 wait. Say,
0: say, say, say that again. What exactly happened to your wife? She got booted from where?
4: Beyonce from from America. So she like we were a week away from. Getting oh married, right. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And then she flew back to tell her grandma. She comes in the airport. And they're like, "You have too many bags. You're gonna overstay what's left on your visa." So I'm I'm waiting it out here, uh, close to the Ukrainian border. So if you want to come visit, bro, drink. Oh, uh, really? Okay. Well, what's we can what's drink your like uh... vodka here? Even though you know the the Romanians are, don't care for those people.
0: <laughs> but
5: my question: What's your, your...
0: Uh, before you get to your question? Like, what's are you seeing? anything? Are you observing anything from your vantage point uh, of, of note?
4: Yeah. Well, I'm a veteran too. And, oh, uh, I, I, I
0: remember death. you. I remember. I think I remember you. Yeah,
4: there. yeah. Thank you. This is not the real picture yeah. of me. Um, okay, yeah. The Red Scare <laughs> veteran. The Red Scare <laughs> yeah. fan. Like yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You're uh, the profile picture. Normal guy. You. Who is that? James, <laughs> James Randy or I don't know. Who knows? Um, go ahead. Yeah. Those are good days, man.
4: Um, no, so you want something? I noticed before this war started, um, like, because we go to the gym a lot and then these guys with, like, Black Rifle Coffee and, like crazy tattoos that did look very Romanian. Uh
0: Uh-oh, Black black Rifle Coffee's a tell.
4: Yeah, yeah, they're not the subtlest. It's like, oh, I'm just doing consulting work for the embassy here. And Um. then, you know, things ratcheted up. So that's, I mean, we don't have to lay it all out. But my question for you is this, because I hate people that get out here and just tell their life story. Uh, There's this thing going around where the Russians are claiming, and they've shown some documents, but who the fuck knows, of these, like, bioweapons labs.
0: Yeah, yeah, the mobile yeah, mobile
4: saw bio weapons labs. Do you think that's
0: bullshit? Um, you know, I have to look at that more closely. I mean I, I did a first blush uh, uh, scan of the documents that this – that account posted and it seems like it was all in Russian or uh, Ukrainian or some Slavic language that I don't – Yeah, read. yeah. Um, so I don't know. Um, I mean I, it, it's – maybe a week or so ago or two weeks ago i did see somebody post documentation of similar initiatives in ukraine that the us was demonstrably funding i mean i don't know if it's the biological warfare stuff that's being claimed now but you know bio uh, biological quote research under military auspices right and um you know even let I me mean, think about the whole controversy over the origins of covid right being there it, it, there there was National Institutes of Health in involvement in that pla- uh, right. lab in Wuhan, right? I mean, so it's not right. like crazy. It's not a crazy notion. Uh right. the taxpayer dollars are allocated toward this stuff in places around the world that you wouldn't necessarily think, because the U.S. is the hegemonic power of our times and has its tentacles everywhere it possibly can. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, it's, it's, it's plausible, um, but you know. Uh, got to obviously wait for more, uh, confirmation before drawing any conclusions.
4: All right. The second, my second, the last, I'll leave real quick. Have you gone down the Bruce P Jackson rabbit hole?
0: (laughs) No. What what is that rabbit hole? He's the founder of the committee. Oh yes, yes, yes. Of, uh, of, uh, the, the guy who was the lobbyist for NATO expansion. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And he's the one behind NATO expansion and he works for Lockheed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Brothers, I
0: have gone down that point. rabbit hole, actually.
4: Dude, don't doubt it, man. <laughs> it's Dude, just
0: such it's a generic name thing. that it didn't uh, ring a bell immediately.
4: Yeah, because sometimes I think when we talk about the military industrial complex, we're like, you know, it's an abstraction to people. When you can, like, point to a name, and, like, the guy's friends with Paul Wolfwitz and David Frum and fucking Gary Kasparov, like, every asshole in the world is, like, being funded by this guy. All right, I will take up your time. Yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. So much, Fred.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, And, you know, by the way, in the, the documents from the Clinton presidential archive that I uh, was talking about, there's a pretty stark admission from Clinton, which is that you know he is you know, in this dialogue with Boris Yeltsin in 1995 and he's gearing up, Clinton is, for the 1996 elections. So All right. I, election.
4: I have a question for you about that then. Thanks. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When
4: he talk about Ohio and these other states, yeah, yeah. Is, is he like saying like they're sort of nationalists and the Republicans are going to win on their expansion that way? Or is he saying they make bombs that we're sending to these bullshit? Yeah,
0: well, I was just gonna say, yeah, it's. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think um, he didn't come out right and say it right because that would be kind of vulgar, right? Uh, but you know, the, he's talking about weapon, where weapons systems are produced in, in these uh, in these states. Which, right. which are in the, the, the lobbyists on behalf of those systems are hugely influential. I mean, I think it would probably be more relevant maybe for a congressional race than a presidential race, but I mean, it could still d- definitely be an issue. And then just in a more kind of abstract political sense, he was talking about how you know the Republicans were going to beat him up for you know uh, for not supporting NATO expansion, and people were tweeting back at me saying, "What? I mean, that's such an arcane issue. You're talking about. I don't think you know, guys in Wisconsin were." Getting themselves right. uh, into a tizzy over NATO expansion, but no, I mean that's not—it's not really. I don't think you know in fairness to Clinton, uh, which I don't often offer, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's what he meant. I mean, I think it was going to be kind of folded into this whole broader debate over what constitutes a strong national defense, particularly in that period where the U.S. was the undisputed unrivalled hegemon and was kind of building up its uh, power at breakneck pace. Um, so I think it, it was probably a salient political issue in that sense. But um, both from the standpoint of like the actual financial vested lobbying interest that were furiously lobbying for it um, at the time and which have made tons of money by – you know because in, in order for countries to join NATO, they have to meet certain standards for military inter- interoperability, right? That's the buzzword, interoperability. Um, and who do you think supplies those mechanisms by which interoperability right. is chief? It's the US weapons right. contractors. Yeah, I mean there are some – Weapons uh, manufacturers and other related industries in like France and whatnot um, but but you know, by and large the u s so yeah, I mean uh, I think the bruce P jackson rabbit hole is a, is a good one to go down actually, and i'm sort of curious what he's uh up to at the moment, if anybody can track him down yeah he's still alive too
4: that's what he's I, around he's I, only sixty nine I, 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 cool I mean like it. he, he I, still' I another couple... never on t v he's never writing anything
0: no i mean I, the, the, the last thing I saw that he wrote was uh, I, I think in two thousand I'm going to mess it up. I, I know he testified before Congress uh, in advocacy of the uh, 2004 round of NATO ambitions, so including Slovenia and, and so forth, um, which was a pretty fateful one actually given, as I mentioned before, the Slovenia prime minister is calling for a no-fly zone. Um, right. So yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, somebody should try to track him down. Um, maybe once I return from Poland, I'll kind of try to enter his lair.
4: Inst- I think he's at
0: the Hoover Institution. Uh so
4: of you know, some,
0: some, somebody go to Palo Alto and knock on the yeah, door. Yeah,
4: with a bunch of fuck
0: faces there. <laughs> yeah. All right,
4: we'll talk later, Matt. So All, right.
0: All right, thanks, Matt. Okay, uh Suze, a regular caller. Hey. Hey, how are
6: yeah. you? Um, by the way, for Android people, I found out that like it kind of times out if you are listening for a while without touching the app, so like before you come up, I hmm. like exit the episode and then go back into the episode and then I kind of mute. Um,
0: maybe you should you should maybe uh, contact somebody at call and let them know if it's like a bug or something.
6: Um, yeah, I, I think yeah. I will. They they've been helpful in the past. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but I was calling because um, I just wanted to uh, push you a little bit or get your view because I feel like if anyone could change my mind on it, it might be you about. Okay. The Nazis in Ukraine like I feel like the more I look into it the more I'm disturbed by how powerful they are like um people from like Azov and the other like and the parties behind it the like explicitly neo-nazi parties like have been appointed to chiefs of police their paramilitaries are like were like appointed to monitor the last elections um yeah 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 they just are in so many places uh so many positions of power in Ukraine, they seem, and like, the more I read about them being able to, you know, pressure um, judicial decisions and resort to violence if they don't get their way, like, to me, it just seems like I, if, if it was, this was happening in the country next door to me, who were explicitly hateful to me, I would feel like my country was in a lot of danger.
0: Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disputing that necessarily. And um, some of the stuff you mentioned there, I'm not. 100% familiar with. I've I've seen quite a, a bit of it. I, what I was d- disputing was the characterization that Putin seems to be using of the entire government just being like a Nazi agenda, right? I mean, I think that's a vast overstatement that he's using as a pretext to you know, justify uh, the war. Doesn't nece- doesn't preclude that there are genuinely fascistic or hyper-fervent nationalistic elements or overt Nazi Nazi sympathizing elements that are uh, in positions of power in Ukraine uh, in Ukraine which there are i mean the, the the Azov Battalion is well known as an active force in Ukraine and they've been engaged as, as I understand it in fierce battle in the south uh, and have been actively targeted um uh, there was there was one bombing video um that uh, of a of a state like government building um where the actual target of the Russian bomb supposedly was like a recruiting stand or something for, for the Azov battalion. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's clearly been in the interest of kind of Western supporters of Ukraine or, you know, that's a kind of a euphemistic way to put it. But like the the people on that side of this conflict to downplay or minimize or even deny outright the existence of – these forces as a real element. I, I just object. Like if, if there was a, <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of players in the U S that I really object to, you know, in, maybe even in law enforcement or in the military or or, or whatever. And uh, so I, I would object to like collective punishment being applied to my entire country, including me and my family uh, on, on account of those um, let's say noxious forces that happen to also be in my country. I mean, so I, so I think denazification Again, is 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 a is a pretext in that sense, but again, it doesn't it doesn't uh, deny that there are these actors in Ukraine as you you described.
6: Yeah, like I definitely don't think that they're it's like that they're all Nazis. I don't think Zelensky is a Nazi. I just think that he's – I mean, there are always these scares in the U.S. about
0: Nazis how um, the, the, and the
6: I mean, they're really always... scared of them because they've already, you know. That I mean, you cool. always have
0: like people, Friendly you know, political uh,
6: violence.
0: yeah, you, you always have organs like, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center or these other kind of liberal like uh, uh, t- reporters who focus on, quote, extremism or whatever, uh, talking about how the, like, the the police departments and the military and like the Correctional Officers Association or whatever are overrun by fascists, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I don't d- doubt that there are People in, actually, I know for sure that there are people in law enforcement in the U.S. with some insidious views on stuff. Um, but I, I often think it's like it's a threat inflation tactic to kind of blow it out of proportion often if you look at the, the media, the liberal media coverage. And I think there's you know a, a similar dynamic here potentially. Maybe it's more outsized in Ukraine, granted. granted. Um, and the, the actual fascistic elements have a greater influence than has been uh, – commonly acknowledged but i do think there's kind of like a similar ploy being being utilized by by putin to to justify which ultimately comes down to an um a preemptive act of of aggressive war which i've never supported in my life so there you go yeah that's a
6: really good that's a really apt comparison to the united states because i definitely see that when i see that happening here it seems really overblown um so that makes sense yeah, thanks for all right. Thank you,
0: Seuss. Gonna go to uh, Dade. Another repeat hey, caller, if um, I'm not um, mistaken. Mike.
7: Yep. So, Joe, just like three short questions that I wanted to ask to you. Yeah, sure. First off, you were just talking about these like, battalions in the east, the Azov battalion, etc. Do you mm-hmm. think um, Zelensky has any control over these people?
0: Look, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't want to present myself as an authority or an expert on the inner workings of the Ukraine political system. I'm not. I mean, I I, I know that I've been. You know, I've been an interested observer for quite a while now. As Ukraine is somehow always <laughs> keeps recurring as a central issue in U.S. domestic political discussion. Um, but you know, I would have to have so much more information. I'd have to probably speak the language, or just deeply invested in the issue in, in a way that I, I really haven't to be able to answer that question with any confidence. I mean, I, I've know I've seen theories, or I've seen it uh, speculated, or even asserted that he doesn't. Meaning, he doesn't have control over those kind of uh, militia elements, and that they're they're threatening him, and they're like one of the forces that kind of boxed him in, so that he couldn't follow through on the Minsk. Agreement, Which would have been potentially a peaceable solution out of this in terms of giving Ukraine neutral status and uh, affording a certain kind of semi-autonomous recognition to the Donbass region and so forth. I mean apparently according to – due to internal political pressures in part from those hyper-nationalistic factions, uh, Zelensky was – constrained from doing that i mean that's the that's the rendering that i've seen and that seems plausible to me but i don't have enough firsthand knowledge to really tell you as as though i i personally have like ascertained something unique
7: but but you would agree that it's it's possible
0: yeah i think it's possible sure okay
7: Uh, another question that i had is um do you think that the united states or would you say that the united states in the current situation should do nothing in terms of sanctions
0: uh, look, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere with angry all caps emails and stuff, I have a lot of people asking me all the time, so what would you do, smart guy? I mean, what's your plan? You're just like criticizing. Just like, okay, yeah, because I'm not in the government, right? I mean, I'm not – I almost don't accept the, the any premise which somehow uh, suggests that I'm obliged to like give the US like a proactive sanction strategy. All I will say is that – and even the New York Times actually admitted this in its article um, on the U.S. taking this unprecedented approach to collapse the Russian economy. Uh, but even the New York Times said the following – let me just pull it up real quick uh, if I can find it. Anyway, I'll, I'll just paraphrase. They basically said that you know, on the other hand, there's not a whole lot of evidence that U.S. sanctions didn't have ever done anything good or ever even achieved their stated purpose, whether that's in uh, – you know. Uh, Venezuela or Cuba or Syria or even North Korea. Um, and so it seems potentially in question that it could achieve its stated aims in the case of Russia, which has a vastly larger economy than any um, any of these other countries that the US have target has targeted at least in recent years. I mean Iran supposedly you know Iran, Trump put in the most extreme sanctions ever against Iran. I mean they keep finding new sanctions and new things to sanction. In the case of Iran, and you know, has that um, dampened Iran's supposed desire to get a nuclear weapon? I mean, we're in another scare uh, around that now. I mean, it doesn't. It's just a, a method by which U.S. politicians can uh, claim their toughness or demonstrate how uh, determined they are to like inflict punishment on other states that are deemed to be adversaries. It's it doesn't even achieve what they say it's supposed to achieve. Um. So, you know, um, I, I, so uh, I guess the bottom line is I am not in a position where, I'm inclined to endorse any U.S. sanctions regime uh, because they uh, seem to produce other, nothing other than misery for the civilian population and uh, actually entrench the uh, political control of the supposedly bad actors that we're saying we want to undermine. Actually, in the New York Times article, um. A White House official, a Biden White House official, for, was quoted as saying a couple years, uh, like a, a few weeks ago, that um, I got to pull this up. Let me just uh, make sure I have the exact quote for you, because I don't want to mischaracterize it. Hold on one second. This is the best part of calling, where I scramble to. Find a link to something. We'll definitely take your time. Okay. Um, so here's what here's what the Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics, which is like a seems like a BS position to me, but anyway, worked in the White House apparently. Uh, here's what he said last month of the sanctions regime that the U.S. would impose on Russia should they invade. Quote, we target them carefully to avoid even the appearance of targeting the average Russian civilian. Now they're outright admitting that they're targeting the average Russian civilian now they're saying that Russian civilians have to pay the price for what the government has done. I mean, Blinken said on this past Wednesday, the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, "quote The Russian people will suffer the consequences of their leader's choices." Well, really, I mean that's that's quite that's quite a new uh, logic that previously would have been regarded as pretty anathema, um, at least for the U.S. For U.S. politicians or executive branch officials to admit outright, I mean, I think that clearly it's the case that these sanctions target ordinary civilians. I mean, why? Why during COVID were we preventing Iran through sanctions from getting medical supplies? Why? I mean, that's that. That was the, one of the most ridiculously straightforwardly kind of immoral thing in, in recent history for – at least from the standpoint of the, the sanctions regime and even foreign policy writ large for the US. Um, so okay. that, that's that's always, that's always the net effect, right? But it, it's rare for them to admit it so bluntly and now they're admitting so, it.
7: So you would – it would be fair to say that you would not endorse any particular sanction but you also wouldn't endorse the position of having no sanctions in this
0: position? I, I'm not willing to endorse anything unless somebody can – Demonstrate to me that they will serve some useful purpose and in the case of US sanctions. I've never seen that evidence So I mean that's 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 my my take
7: and okay, so and then I just had one last question um, What do you think would be the best offer? To give and I, I if this is the same answer as the last one where you don't endorse any like particular thing yeah. Then you know, then I understand but that just want to put that last question anyway. Thanks for taking my questions
0: yeah, I mean, in terms of an off-ramp, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I saw that apparently the prime minister of Israel, uh, Naftali Bennett, had a secret meeting with Putin in Moscow. And today, and Putin you know, just basically turned him down uh, to his face. I mean, meaning turned down. Bennett's offer to serve as some kind of mediator with Ukraine. I don't know that Putin, Putin doesn't appear to be seeking any mediation with Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, again, because it gets back to... It's not fundamentally – it doesn't appear to fundamentally be a war between the US or between the Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between Russia and the US with Ukraine as the proxy, right? Um, so in that case, it would seem potentially prudent for Biden <laughs> – God God help us – to um, engage in direct uh, talks with Putin. I mean that hasn't been done throughout this entire – Affair really to any meaningful extent. Um, It's just been you know Biden getting before the TV camera and saying, "Oh, maybe he'll do a minor incursion." I mean, and what good? What good did that do? Um, uh, You know, at least John F. Kennedy and during the Cuban Missile Crisis was like spry enough that he could you know get on the phone with these uh, with uh, Khrushchev, and uh, you know they 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 came up with a deal to take the missiles out of Turkey and resolve the. Situation. I mean, I think Kennedy was incredibly reckless to even have gotten it to that point in, in, in all in the first place where he was uh, willing to potentially entertain the prospect of nuclear annihilation just so missiles wouldn't be in Cuba. Um, but nonetheless, like, he actually – hes uh, apparently, he evidently had enough diplomatic acumen and kind of adroitness to, to, to resolve the situation. I'm, I have doubts as to whether Biden's capable of that at this point. He seems – Sort of MIA. Um, maybe that's better than the alternative because he would say something needlessly. You know, maybe even escalatory or whatever. I mean, I think the the minor incursion comment was potentially pretty fateful. Um, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm not claiming that the word that the U.S. government forced Russia to invade. Ukraine people, Ukraine Okay, but I do think it, it, it does it, – it struck me throughout the whole run-up to this that the US was doing the opposite of de-escalation. It was constant by constantly just stating that the invasion was going to happen. And yeah, look, maybe they did have uh, concrete, foolproof intelligence that the invasion was going to have be happening all this time. That's certainly plausible at this point. But from a diplomatic perspective – if you knew the invasion was going to happen, why would you not be doing everything humanly within your power, especially if it could escalate into a World War III type scenario, to, to avert it and it just wasn't done? I mean I did a whole substack on this um, last week or not – no. Yeah, like five days ago or something. Um, and I, I don't see the urgency from Biden or the willingness to – to engage and it needs to be Biden. I mean, it has to be the U S president. Nobody else has it within their power to address the core Russian grievances. Um, And I don't know apparently there's just either an unwillingness or an inability on uh, Biden's part to, to do that in any substantial way. So I I, I don't know what off ramp is really attainable other than that. Um, All right. Thanks, Dade. And uh, now Eric, long time. The, interlocutor
8: of mine. I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to be able to identify myself as a, one of Michael Tracy's longtime interlocutors. So thank
0: you. <laughs> yes. Put that on your business card. I
8: shall. Um, so
0: Or your email signature.
8: <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, at, yeah, um, I'm Eric at MichaelTracy.com. So anyways, <laughs> um, I, uh, I guess the, the earlier point you, we were making, I think you might have slightly touched on, but I just... Really, really drills down to me that, you know, makes me really think that we're in a dangerous time, I guess. It's just how much of this is the, the contributing cause of which is that we're trying to protect Hillary Clinton's ego, that she lost that election. And that so much of what Russiagate was, was um, them, them, you know, from that book that, you know, the insider account where they, you know, they sat down that night over Shake Shack and they all gone on the yeah, same yeah, page. Yeah. That this Russian right? pollution, Yeah, shattered. And um, the concept that, you know, that was worth, you know, everything that we've, you know, come to this point now, Um, because, you know, because because we can't admit nobody in the elite can admit that Bernie would have won or even that Biden would have won. Um, and that, you know, it was kind of a stupid idea to run the least popular candidate against the least popular candidate. Oh, oh, but you see her negatives, they were baked in. It's like, no, they weren't. They went even lower. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody can No, It's just another one of those elite failures that just feed into more elite failures. And these people are as prone to the when prophecies fail as 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 anybody. And yet they seem to now be taking such victory laps. I see against you and other people. Um, but, you know, in terms of being able to say, aha, we were right this time. And it's like, even if you want to say that you were right on the specific point of um, whether or not Putin would actually pull the trigger, um, every other like Russia-related uh, story as part of every other, you know, in the U.S. media complex has been like totally debunked. I mean, what has been yeah. real?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can't get lots of people to even grant your premise, Right. Or yeah, in other words, I can't them get them to even admit that there's a connection between Russia Gate and this current situation, in insofar as Russia Gate kind of fertilized the ground in the U.S. domestically to kind of warp perceptions of Russia and prime the public to accept a drastic escalation of military hostilities. And with it, was so um, it was so broad. It was so
8: broad because it was also Red Sparrow and um you know the Americans and all these. Cold War television shows that are that try to, you know, it's, it's Hollywood. It's it's the military industrial complex. It's everything. And it's well, really well, I mean, fascinating.
0: I think, I mean, uh, I don't remember exactly when Red Sparrow came out, but I think, it might, was that prior to 2016? Did the, you see the, that the, one? It was the, a good the,
8: movie, but, you know. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but you
0: know, there, there's, always, there's always been, like, Cold War uh, dramatization Hollywood and stuff. I, I don't think that was really a key issue. Well, here. I, I think to the, the, point, the, the, the far sorry. more critical issue, the far more critical issue uh, is the Ideological characterization of Putin since 2016 as this enabler of Trump or installer of Trump or this uh, Putin inflicted Trump upon the
8: U.S. So all of Trump's deaths now count as Putin's deaths in the you know the victims of communism type you know calculus.
0: Yeah, or or even 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 just more more uh, broadly beyond Trump, just the kind of exporter of quote. Divisiveness throughout the Western world by kind of amplifying or even you know funding. I mean, they don't even establish that he's ever funded anything uh, along these lines, but you know it's it's asserted that he has a hand in kind of fomenting this kind of illiberal right wing populism around the world, whether it's Trump or you know Le Pen or um, Brexit or what have you. Um, And and because of that, we have to view through that prism. With with Putin's view through that prism and being like this arch supervillain that uh, dominated U.S. politics for several years, it's yeah, it has trained especially the kind of leftward end of the political spectrum of the U.S. and it's important because now we have a democratic administration in power to um, perceive Putin a different in a certain way. And I you know I postulated in my one of my sub from last week that that kind of poisoned the well for any kind of genuine diplomatic engagement uh, on the scale that would have been required to avert a horrible situation like this. Um, And that's why there's like total unanimity even in the kind of left or progressive media. I mean, yeah, some of them are cautioning, you know, on practical terms about the wisdom of a no-fly zone, but none of them are questioning kind of the basic premises here of flooding the entire country with arms and basically being a combatant, a co-combatant with Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, there—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's unacceptable to question a whole host of premises that I do think could be traced back to the the frenzy that was brought about by RussiaGate and how that distorted kind of popular uh, conceptions of Russia and Putin. And I, I think it's—it's really—it's—it's uh, it, it's a vital uh, precursor here. Um, and I—you're gonna have—I have a hard time. You and or anybody else. Myself included would have a very hard time convincing a lot of people uh, that it bear has any relevance at all uh, when I think it clearly does. But anyway, uh, thanks, Eric. Um, Pradeep, we already spoke to, uh, so let's go to uh, Masha.
9: Masha, are you there? Yeah, hi. Yes, I'm here. Hi. Um, yeah, I came on to say one thing, and then like a thousand others kind of surfaced but um okay. I think one thing I really wanted to kind of get at was this goldfish consciousness that's been like really um expanding in the west, like where you know it makes it really easy to manufacture consent if you don't know what happened ten years ago, and increasingly, you kind of don't even really know what happened last week, you know, like your attention is just being pulled every which way, and as like a Western consumer of sort of, like, broadly, like, political or, or like, news, um, you know, like, stage show kind of, like, cultural production. Uh, You really, like, there's no analysis. There's no longer any focus on actual reporting. Like, everything is very kind of narrativized. So Mm -hmm. I I think that that's one thing that I would like to... Um, kind of like bring attention to. So you do need to be careful about like what you consume, how you consume it, what you think it means, et cetera,
0: right? Oh, yeah, I agree with that totally. I mean, and your your concept of narrativization, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yes, kind of yeah. reminds me of something that I just wrote about today in, the, in my latest Substack. Sorry to be con- constantly self-promotional. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's this, um, the social media companies right now are clamping down on Russian... Yeah, um- Media uh, and you know the whole Russian bot craze is uh, right uh, ramping up once again, and they're act they're they're proud just to, to declare that they're actively amplifying the kind of Ukraine narrative. And yeah. look, I, I mean, I don't, I I, I readily acknowledge that there, a lot of Ukrainians are undergoing a lot of hardship right now. I mean, that's clear. It's a yeah. horrible situation, but um, for w- only one side of the narrative to be what's so kind of serviced by institutions of power in the US and what – to have like the – it be algorithmically engineered so that that's really only what people ever see. um, It's necessarily going to create a hugely distorted information environment so you don't have a clear idea of what's actually going on factually. I mean this whole – what about the concept of fog of war? I mean I thought everybody just agrees almost as a trivial Point that a fog of war arises during a state of war like this, and so what does a fog of war mean? It means there's there's kind of like omnidirectional propaganda happening, and you can't really trust anything, right? But even though a lot of journalists, even you know, they'll 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 admit, I mean, they'll they'll, they'll claim to have you know the seasoned awareness of the perils of the fog of war. At the same time, they'll just basically mindlessly uh, parrot whatever these Ukrainian government officials are saying even as they know or ought to know anyway that what the Ukrainian government is explicitly doing right now not just Zelensky but even Zelensky's you know his uh, rivals and his the, the former president Poroshenko who he charged with treason and fled the country mm-hmm. and is not back they're all united and again it's understandable but nonetheless they're all united in demanding a no fly zone so
9: yeah, well, They're, I mean, the, I'm the, sure Vicki Newland is like is telling them that that's what they need to demand, right? Like,
0: well, I don't know what I don't know if she's telling them that, but but
9: but she he, is. She's back in the region and she's calling the shots again. Yes, yeah. that's that's actually true. So this is okay. Like that, I also think it's really is there any tedious and exactly stupid. She's doing? Um, they don't, n- nothing, nothing that can be like, uh, confirmed t- with any accuracy, mm-hmm. right? But she's, you know, talking to people, setting, setting up kind of conversations. So, uh, the only, the only kind of like, um, uh, p- potential like, um, whole through that triangulation might be the fact that Kolomoisky is also trying to kind of have a hand in like, what is the future of Western Ukraine, right? Even though he fled with his many billions and whatever. But, um, so, but that, but that brings me back to the point of like, why are we talking, like you, you talked about not wanting to like psychoanalyze Putin or Zelensky and that's, that's good. We, we shouldn't, they don't fall for it. Like these are figureheads. Like the Zelensky was a, what, like a, a comedian, uh, an actor, right? Then he was completely propped up like the Ryan Seacrest. Yes, (laughs) yes. So who the fuck even believes for a second that he's in charge in any significant way? He's there to look tired, to pull a chair up in front of some journalists, and to call and to to say whatever the fuck he's being told to say to you know the international community or whatever, but like right? Like, I don't think there's any reason to think that he has any agency in this, right?
0: Well, I mean he definitely is under the thumb of the U S that's, that's clear. Yeah. Um, like why would
9: the powers that be tolerate for a moment, a figure like that, like having any true power or agency in the situation, they would not. Therefore let's fucking stop. Let's stop elevating him. This had for me, this had has shades of like that liberal fervor for like Cuomo and people are calling themselves Cuomo sexuals and like whatever. Right. Right. It's, yeah. it's so demented. Same with Putin. Like he was, he was absolutely, um, you know, uh, like y- yeltsin was told to to raise him through the ranks right by by american handlers like that's that's who he was anointed by so like right. this is another figure like why do we th- like it's it's completely to me uh, a misdirect and and a waste of energy to try and speculate as to why these particular men and it's it also is completely um, just this, like, ahistorical, non-analytical, like, super emotional, like, oh, that's it, that's a like, demonic bad guy, you know, like, yeah. oh, come on, we're not in a comic book, like, let's be real, right? In the yeah. meantime, uh, you know, Visa and Mastercard stopped doing business in in Russia, and immediately Russia made a deal with China to to innovate a new platform for consumer credit. <laughs> like hello yeah. these things are happening in the background while we're focusing on who is zelensky and who is you know putin this
0: well i mean the the elevation of zelensky as this kind of folk hero it, it kind of makes her as you put as you mentioned like a very convenient kind of emotionally scintillating uh, narrative that can serve as a rallying point for um you know us interests um and you know it's not to say again that there's I, I I don't fully I, I agree that clearly Zelensky is in, uh, in in a in a very real sense like in under the command of the U S, um, but I don't think it's it's entirely right to say that he has no agency or will or what whatsoever. And, and you know the same way to go for Putin. I mean, explain, once, explain once why
9: could I hear why? Do you have like a logical or rational like, well, basis I think, I think, for that belief?
0: Well, because I think there are still – even if even if you're under the thumb of a foreign power, right, there are still things you can do within those constraints that are of your own volition or of your will. It doesn't mean you're not constrained, right? Uh, but there are still choices you can make that are uh, of your own will um, in, in a sense. Uh, and in the case of Putin, um, I mean <laughs> I, I think it's clear that he wields a lot of – uh, he personally wielded a lot of power in Russia. Like, I don't know who would be pulling the strings uh, for Putin. Uh,
9: oh, there's a point. whole, there's a whole, like, a class, of, like a, a powerful class that have, like, you know, consistently pushed him out front, right, to be a figurehead. Yeah. Uh, just, just as was true for Medvedev, and then he got sidelined for very specific reasons, and Lavrov and others. And, you know, like, there are military figures that are, like, similar, oh, like, you okay. know, the strongmen versus oligarchs kind of, like, idea. Oh, sure, yeah. Right, like of internal, like to Russia, kind of uh, maneuvering for power. But uh, yeah, well, I, don't I mean, like well,
0: in, in in the case of the U.S., right? Like, you know, I, I don't know if you if you would include Biden in this, for example. But you know, let's say Biden is. I'm not convinced Biden after- exists
9: as anything okay. more well, than like a cardboard the, cutout the, anymore. I don't know. The,
0: there, well, there is some figure who appears occasionally that uh, <laughs> uh, has the form of vaguely of right. Biden. Right. Um, and uh, let's say he was like installing power uh, using – in a similar fashion or that he he didn't control his own destiny or however you want to put it exactly. Right. Even if that were the case, it is still true that as president, like inhabiting that office, you have such enormous unilateral power over a huge, huge swath of existentially important decision-making. Um, and I, I think you know, unfortunately, it, it does – Often come to, It does come down to the ind- individual in terms of the Ooh, individual <laughs> decisions that are made in the moment.
9: But have you um, read anything about like how to, – to what extent like the civil service and and like the people around uh, Trump while he was nominally the president or in yes, office yeah, sure. uh, worked to – And I don't to... discount any of
0: that. I mean I I tried to report on a lot of that. Yeah. I, I just think it doesn't necessarily negate individual agency to the extreme that you seem – to be suggesting, but anyway, thought, it's good food for thought, Masha. Thank you.
9: Yeah, um, and I mean, also, I don't, I, I, don't think that there's any reason to believe that, like I said, the the people truly in power would be allowing these figureheads to to, to make any real decisions. And just one last thing, and in, in in the background, like there was capital flight from Ukraine. Now they're flush with cash, right? That's a, that's a consideration for global mm-hmm. economics as we're watching deglobalization happen, right? As like one global system seems to be fracturing in two for sure right, with two big power blocks and the whole like thing about nato joining nato is that you take on an enormous um, economic burden so that so that your your weapon systems can work with other nato weapon systems which is actually what broke greece right. and what installed a te- like a, a imf technocrat in greece to to lead them so that's yeah that's all i'll say for
0: all right well thank you for that um Going to go next to uh, For Revolution, the Colorado guy. Hey, Michael. Um, hey.
10: So, a couple callers ago brought in the Russiagate uh, aspect, and I think that's just such an important part of how we got to where we are today. But it, yeah. just as a hypothetical, I'm curious your thoughts. What if Hillary had one and Russiagate hadn't happened for the last six years now? how would that affect where we are now would it have accelerated it with hillary who i mean they they're not fond of russia and haven't been you know strongly interested in collaborating with russia for a decade or two now and and i know it's just it's hypothetical but i think it does kind of go into you know seeing all the sides of how we got to where we are today what's what's your view on on that
0: on that out. Jeez. Well, yeah. Obviously a, a huge counterfactual. I, I I think if Hillary had one, there would have maybe been some push to exact revenge on Putin for allegedly interfering at all, like for trying to prevent her from gaining the presidency. Um but I think Russia gate would have not uh, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as intense. Like whatever uh, variation of that might have occurred under under Hillary, it wouldn't have been close to the the, the scope that it was under Trump. To, to the point that it kind of like a remade, kind of like the um, political orientation around Russia relations as an issue um, in the U.S. Um, so I don't I don't I don't think it would have been. Anywhere approaching as extreme under under Hillary, so maybe that means I mean maybe that kind of ironically means that the relations wouldn't have uh, deteriorated as much as they did because a key dynamic of Russia Gate was that Trump, you know, clearly uh, appeared to uh, politically calculate that to kind of compensate or to uh, counteract this uh, image of him as uh, a pawn of Putin or even like a literally. Uh, uh, being controlled by Putin because he had been installed into office, I uh, think the Kremlin, you know, he he overcompensated with these kind of hawkish measures. The mo- you know, probably the most critical, which for the current situation is the sending of lethal arms to Ukraine. So I mean, I think the, it, it's conceivable to me that in this alternate universe, you know, relations with Russia kind of plod along at a fairly degraded level under Hillary, but don't don't tank in uh, well, to quite the, the extreme extent of- that they have
10: little bit I mean you know I think I think Hillary's more of a bloodthirsty maniac than Trump was I think Trump you know surrounded himself by neocons uh, or with neocons and, and um, you know Bolton and, and people like that but um, Hillary is pretty bloodthirsty and and isn't this situation you know, if we omit RussiaGate, isn't this been kind of the push for you know going back to the Maidan coup in 2014 and and uh, installing a different uh, regime there or assisting in, in installing a different regime there in 2014 in Ukraine? Hasn't this been like a stepping on Russia's doorstep for you know in that sense? Isn't there? Isn't this kind of been yeah. a, a writing on the wall for a while? But we've been trying to agitate Russia through different means, and, and certainly Russia Gate and all the sanctions that came with that has been an escalation. But wasn't the Ukraine thing before? Well, Russiagate yeah, I mean the writing, too, the
0: writing. To... The writing has definitely been on the wall. I just think, you know, Russiagate is kind of worth isolating as a factor because it was key in creating the domestic political conditions in the U.S. So not to do with necessarily what's going on in Ukraine or wherever, where the writing was on the wall, irrespective of Russiagate, right? But in the U.S. specifically, in terms of its domestic political climate, I think Russia was, uh, Russiagate played a, a critical role in um, again priming the public to accept something as crazy as, as this which is that we're on the precipice of potentially I mean I, I I have to like pinch myself to when I'm actually saying it that it's it's a reality um, you know we're on the precipice of world war 3 with, with Russia I just don't again counterfactuals can always be quibbled with and they're they're kind of inherently abstract right but, but it's hard for me to imagine that absent rushgate absent the propagandistic effect that had on um, the public and especially the Democratic coalition, which is currently in power, uh, it, it's hard for me to imagine what we get from point A to point B, you know, with, without that um, as a kind of an, an accelerant. Um,
10: one all right. Last thank question. you. If, could I ask you one more question? Yeah, yeah. Question? Go ahead. So, so say that the the hawks in this country get their way and we put a uh, no fly zone in over Ukraine or over parts of Ukraine, at least where does China fall into that? And does China act, does China sit out? Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, China is, you know, clearly closer to Russia on this one than, than to the U S and how does, how does that go? I mean, China's well, I mean, a there's massive a... army, massive military. And well,
0: <laughs> well, th- yeah, I mean, there, there you go. I mean, that's,
10: <laughs> There's the it's uh, it's, it's it's
0: harrowing against. to even like go into this level of uh, kind of apocalyptic speculation. But you know, should should the war commence between the U.S. and Russia? I mean, uh, it seems clear what China's interest would be in that scenario. Should it want to itself enter into a war posture and you know, seize Taiwan or whatever? Um, so right. I, I think you know, China seemed to very consciously align itself with Russia. I mean, I've discussed this before, but you had Putin uh, attending that kind of grand uh, opening ceremony of the Olympics and putting out that lengthy statement with Xi and where they said that their friendship has no limits and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, the the apparent alignment here of China is clear. I mean, I don't have any insight into what they would do um, uh, militarily or something, but um, I think that the pieces in place or the pieces are in place for (laughs) an eventuality that is uh, not so great in terms of potential wider war. Um, Thanks for going to
10: Poland and covering this. I appreciate it. Appreciate
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody should commend my bravery too much for being in Poland yet. I mean, I'm I'm in, I've just been to Warsaw and it's basically just business as usual here, except for, you know, this obviously being on people's minds and you see some Ukraine related stuff kind of, around, uh, but it's not like tanks are rolling through the streets or anything. Um, Okay, let's go to uh, Rajiv. Rajiv, are you there? there? Yep.
11: Hey, uh, Hey. thanks for calling me up. Um, So I had two questions. Um, One, I think maybe you had said earlier you don't want to over-psychologize, but one of of the questions I had was it kind of just feels like – part of the reason there's so much anti-Russian and anti-Trump animosity is, you know, particularly from the liberal side is they kind of have, they don't have other healthy outlets for, yeah. um, you know, sort of every every human being sort of has an in-group uh, mentality to some degree, but some people take it to the extreme where they feel guilty for having any sort of tribal or political affiliation and they like denigrate that you sort of natural tendency that it tends to come out in ways and um you know so my first question um and i'll have one more after that was um i mean do you see it you know part of the reason maybe why people are so hawkish or sort of the npcs on twitter or anybody else is they just need this outlet um for rage and and it's just really easy you know now that trump's gone or uh, whatever else, um, you know, it was COVID for a while, it was Canadian truckers, it's like, okay, now here's a new thing where I've sublimated my my in-group desire um, so much, but it's coming out in this, in this new way where it's kind of safe to hate hate on Russians, you know, in this very aggressive, bellicose way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that has to be a factor, right? I mean, clearly the sort of ideological contours of this conflict between the US and Russia where Putin is held out as this arch nemesis who's exporting a liberal you know right-wing insurrectionism throughout the world and that aligns perfectly with the liberal sensibility in the US definitely and probably you know western Europe and so forth um so it kind of ticks every box for them to for something they should they can sublimate their passions into and obviously a war adds a whole other dimension to it um, where it's kind of just inherently this sort of scintillating endeavor that's emotionally exhilarating and demands your constant attention for updates. I mean I'm I, I'm guilty of it as well where I'm constantly scrolling through feeds and pretending that I'm, I know what uh, uh, ausent is on <laughs> any deep level. Um, OSINT, whatever open source tech, uh, intelligence, um, but yeah, I mean, what one? What, what, as you were speaking, I was just reminded of one feature of RussiaGate uh, and why it was so all-consuming and never-ending for all those years, and uh, which is that it kind of, especially if you're one of these online sleuths, there was endless fodder for like. Research. I mean, doing your research in relation, to, doing your own research in relation to COVID was was maligned as like a, <laughs> a dereliction of your duty to just obey the experts. But that's what Russia was. I mean, you had all kinds of amateur, uh, you know, experts who were doing their own research, delving into all these archives. And in a way, I mean, it's a, I think it's a healthy impulse actually. I mean, if you can gain access to documents or whatever. Uh, a lot of times those uh, those people are a little uh nuts, but they can come up with some decent information uh, but but it, it It functioned as like a self directed like first person adventure for a lot of people where they were always finding yeah. new connections always finding new dots to connect right. Um And uh, they had the, this whole catalog of the most obscure like references, right, to these individuals and acronyms and, and on and on and on. I mean Marcy Wheeler is like the best example of this. I don't know if people are familiar with her um, and she's kind of more prominent than your average like Twitter investigator or something. But uh, she, the, the way she tra- tra- uh, dealt with Russiagate you – know, Exactly thought along in this pattern where it was just like a just a, almost like an endless uh, tsunami of, of, of information being thrown out into the public domain, so that you couldn't even really sort through it. So like the the average news consumer who doesn't yeah. have the the interest to like really get into the detail just assumes that you know if there's so much smoke, there must be fire, right? I mean, if there's the quantity that I'm seeing sure. is so large, then you know. It must be the case that you know Trump's guilty of something, even if they couldn't really articulate what they were saying he was guilty of, right, in terms of conspiracy or collusion. Um, so yeah, I well, think so there's, uh, but, but but I think like, that's kind of, but I, I, was, I was thinking in a way that's kind of a universal human impulse, um, and you know, war, sure. war does provide an outlet in in really stark terms for this kind of sublimation that you're referencing. Well, say. okay, yeah.
11: so yeah, this gets into my second question, which is, I mean, I think you you and I both, you know. We're kind of horrified at the amount of escalatory rhetoric um, but one of the problems I see um, for you know if we're looking at you know how can this actually de-escalate is um, you know it seems to me that in terms of rhetoric and other sort of posturing especially by foreign policy experts and elites is they're not really giving an option um, you know for Putin to back down and this is not to say that you know Oh poor Putin, you know, he, you know, he's the sad person. I mean, he obviously he's a thug and he invaded Ukraine, but um I mean talking about, you know, someone was bringing up Hillary Clinton and you were talking about other premises that people seem to hold naturally. Um I remember in 2011 after, you know, the Libya coup and what Gaddafi was murdered, like one of the really strong impulses that motivates Putin is you know, he sort of watched the video of Gaddafi getting yeah, murdered. Yeah. And, you know, there's that interview of Hillary Clinton being like, we came, he came we he, saw he, he died. died. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know for him, it was like a very real fear for him that like, for example, if Hillary Clinton would become president, like they would come for him. And, you know, I think one of his animating impulses is like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to let someone like Hillary come and Gaddafi me. But it seems like, I mean, you look at Lindsey Graham saying like, oh, some random Russian needs to go assassinate him. Like, that's not exactly as waging
0: Putin's fears (laughs) about,
11: you know, this consensus in in Western foreign policy that, yeah, um, you know, Russia deserves to have regime change. And, you know, they literally did it in 2014, which is three years later after Libya. Um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm really not trying to get people to be like, oh, poor Putin, you know, have sympathy for him. He's he you know, he was the aggressor in this situation. But if, if you're if you're someone like you or me who wants to look for a path for de-escalation, people are not. You know, especially Western They're you know, doing the opposite. Countries.
0: They're doing the absolute opposite right
11: doing, now. They're not doing anything that actually assuages yeah. the concerns of Putin and they're in fact using the very rhetoric that will um, speak to his fears, oh someone's actually gonna come and Gaddafi me and behead me. And so I don't know, if you were like if you were in the if you were in the foreign policy situation room, how would you How would you like convince these, you know, quote unquote experts to stop saying these stupid things, you know, and obviously you want to hold him accountable. You don't want to let him off the hook for his aggression, but you also don't want to do the stupid thing where you dismiss this actually very real fear. It seems that people want to depose him or assassinate him and nobody seems to be considering that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you saw it. I tweeted this earlier, but it was an excerpt from the New York Times article that I've been referencing. It was a statement put out by a spokesperson for Boris Johnson in the UK. And they this person admitted that the sanctions were, quote, intended to bring down the Putin regime. You see, that's an admission, a flat admission that the purpose of the sanctions now that everybody's heralding as this groundbreaking advance in the uh, collective ability of the civilized world to exact... Uh, economic punishment on a you know a belligerent state uh, is not just intended to you know, end the war or to uh, achieve some peaceful end, but to collapse the, Putin's government. Um, so, I mean, I think you can be pretty sure that he's aware of that statement from the prime minister's office. Uh, right. A spokesperson for the the French uh, the, the, the the French defense minister said something similar. It's kind of interesting now and actually not a great sign that a lot of European countries are even more wait, even more extreme I mean, the in their I rhetoric than thought- the, the, the American administration tends to be the opposite. Um, so that's kind of maybe like a leading indicator of where this is going. Um, I mean, the
11: first thing I thought of when Lindsey Graham did that horrible thing, which he still hasn't deleted, was like, this is going to get to Putin somehow and he's going to yeah. interpret this as de facto evidence that someone from NATO where someone else is coming to assassinate him, um, you know, and whether that's conspiratorially or not, that is going to inform whether he continues aggressing and continues this war. And it's like, <laughs> so don't say those things. <laughs> yeah. Know.
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> if, you're, uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're in a position where you have to depend on Lindsey Graham to uh, address foreign policy issues with circumspection, <laughs> you're probably not in a great position. All right. Uh, thank you, Rajiv. Going Thanks, to go Michael. to uh, Vikram. Vikram, go ahead. Vikram, are you there? If so, you got to unmute. It's the microphone button in the bottom right corner.
12: Sorry, I don't really have a question. This is my first time listening. I'm enjoying it. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll just take that thank as you. a as a, a nice complimentary uh, comment then. Uh, okay. Uh, Christian you
12: are up yes hello can you hear me I can yes yes, yes I yes thank you for doing this space uh, it's the first uh, space uh, the escalating space that I've found so far online and bad. what does that tell you <laughs> yeah yeah I just have a simple question I first of all thanks uh, so much for uh, arriving in Poland and reporting on the situation and I was wondering if uh, because The information we're getting about, uh, the tactical information, is so foggy. Yeah. Uh, You keep seeing just uh, Ukrainians winning, 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 and then it's all just taken back immediately, not winning. So I'm wondering, do you have any resources to see, like, accurate losses on the the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side? And uh, are you following anyone who's reporting accurately on the situation?
9: Yeah, I mean, well,
12: are you going to take uh, one more thing that just uh, are you going to try to take the pulse of uh, the Ukrainian people? What is their feeling about all of this? I have not seen that in the media so far.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to the extent I can from the vantage point of of Poland. uh, Yeah. Um, On on that last question, um, in terms of getting accurate information about uh, tactical details I mean that the, the big problem is that a lot of the informa- a huge percentage of the information that is funneled out into the public um, you know including the US public derives from official sources in Ukraine so either the Ukrainian Ukraine government or you know the, the Russian government potentially and uh, both are both of those entities are engaged in a campaign of Propaganda right now. So, um, it's, uh, completely foolhardy to present claims by the Ukrainian government as like the authoritative truth. And you would think that, you know, given the war scenario that we're in, more journalists would be cognizant of that. But they're not because, you know, the Ukrainians are the good guys in their mind. And so they have some kind of moral imperative to just transmit whatever the good guys, uh, are saying, which is doubly. Insane, because those quote unquote good guys I'm not saying that they're bad per se, but you know the, I, 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 don't, I do think that the moral bifurcation here has been exaggerated as like just this uh, tale of good versus evil, uh, but but regardless, even if you do think that they're, the, they're the greatest guys in the history of the world, they're calling now for World War III, um, meaning they're calling for a policy intervention that would expressly prompt war with Russia um and uh so you know if you're somebody who maybe doesn't care for the idea of nuclear annihilation you would think that maybe their claims would be treated with a bit more caution but they're they're, they're just not because I don't know everything is just being overwhelmed by this uh mania um so in, in terms of like where I, I mean to get t- t- tactical information um you know I don't Really believe yeah, I, would, I, would I don't believe. Like, to... I don't believe anything that I see. Really, just in, uh, reflexively, uh, yeah. I try to cross-check stuff. But I mean, this—it's there's, there, there's such a blizzard of information, and it's like going to be very difficult yeah, to, to nail that's stuff the, down. You know?
12: Yeah, it's like a, that's the right word because I would accept just like something like uh, predicting the weather. Don't they have like intelligent analysts that can make like an estimate and tell you? Yeah approximately whats you know, another
0: another problem is is that you know a lot of people are relying on these uh, American think tanks for updates on like uh, just the tactical updates uh, so there's this uh, think tank called Institute for the study of war uh, which puts out these daily reports on you know Russian troop advancements and you know what the status is of different fronts in the operation and whatnot and um, you know for all I know they have like uh, the most reliable experts on the planet and all the information is Perfect in its in its veracity, but you know uh, <laughs> it's also a think tank that was founded by the Kagan clan, which is like the preeminent neoconservative family in the u s um, Frederick Kagan Robert Kagan, and uh, one of the two's wife uh, I forget which uh, runs this uh, think tank and you know they have you know all the standard kind of military industrial operators on the board uh, David Petraeus Joe Lieberman oh, god um even Bill crystal uh so you know with a with a, an institution like that, you know I think <laughs> I'm not willing to just uh automatically accept anything they really put out, but at the same time, I mean you can't be so uh, stubborn on it to to just rule out the possibility that they could have accurate insights so its it's just like a, a a balancing act, and um you know it's hard to to really give much firm advice other than to just exercise you know discretion. So.
12: Right, right.
0: Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you, Christian. Uh, let's go to Stephen. And uh, this will be the last uh, caller, unless uh, somebody has something truly brilliant to add. All right. Go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But
5: um, so, yeah, just personally, I'm kind of new to the Ukraine situation. One of the kind of late engaging hypocrites uh, that started paying attention in 2022. Uh, <laughs>
0: so. I guess my redeeming uh, I, quality. I, I, I don't think you're. I don't think you're alone, so don't feel. too bad. Yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah I guess my redeeming quality is that uh, I've been talking directly to Ukrainians uh, that I used to, uh, you know, know or work with, and um, I don't know. That the, I, I guess I had a couple of points I wanted to touch on. One is I find it interesting that as opposed to the '60s, things are a little bit more distributed or what have you. I don't know who the Russian state would even de-escalate with its, at, at this point. It's like, um, there's a lot of financial interest at stake. There's a lot, you know, it, it's definitely multipolar from the st- standpoint of, you know, Swift and the sanctions, which are really kind of, a, uh, the real issue here. Um, and so like, if they wanted to deescalate somehow, like aside from the political ramifications for who would be at play there, um, that's, uh, definitely kind of an interesting thing
0: to me. So I don't know that we
5: have the ability to deescalate at this point,
0: um, well yeah I mean and that and that's the danger here right I mean you're you, there's a point at which things are set in motion enough uh, yeah. that th- th- there's no like single kind of uh, node to to intervene in, to 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 deescalate anymore right and, and this isn't might, the Cuban Q- crisis where yeah. Kennedy
5: can call up you know uh Yeah which is kind of like a
0: more discreet event in a way
5: right yeah. And, and here you have a lot of people profiteering, of course, but also a lot of other staked interests that may not be threatened by a retaliatory nuclear war, which I find kind of interesting as well. But the, the, the more interesting thing to me is, is is less Russia, which is, you know, as I understand it, really messing up this war, bit off more than they could chew. Um, but, you know, there is, of course, the propaganda side from that. The, the interesting thing I find actually is SWIFT and what China just did with union pay. Uh, which kind mm-hmm. of allows them, for the first time, to kind of address U.S. sanctions uh, without being um, directly the aggressor.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think you know that's it's that's definitely an interesting facet of all this, and it gets to the point that you were making about how it's uh, it's almost like a globalized issue now, um, such that you know the. Comparisons with the Cuban Missile Crisis are no longer apt. I mean, that that, that that event could be stopped by the individual decision-making of Kennedy and Khrushchev, right, ultimately. And uh, now it's not inc- clear at all that the same kind of decision-making ability is in anyone, anyone's uh, hands, uh, given how widely – Stuff has spiraled, and you know, and we've set into motion the collapse of the Russian economy. For God's sake, um, will it collapse fully? I don't know. Maybe this, this Chinese uh, intervention is enough of a, of a buoy, um, but you know, it just goes to, to uh, it all goes to show that um, you know this is what escalation look like, looks like. I mean, it, 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 escalation often. It's not conducive to de-escalation anymore because it's it's past the point of no return, and I sort of fear we may be in that very situation. Yeah. All right. Um. Thanks, Stephen, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning into this edition of Colin. <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm uh, currently in uh, Poland, going to be trying to do more reporting uh, this coming week, and uh, we'll keep you apprised. So, uh, take a look at the substack that I published today, if. You haven't had enough of me yet, and uh, I know you want MT 24-7. So um, anyway, uh, all right, everybody. uh, Have a good day, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Take care.